I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the name of the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Those are the first nine verses of Psalm 145, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, August the 5th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our study in the life of David today with 2 Samuel 11, the first 27 verses. We're also in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 11 to 20, and in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. So what we're going to get today in in the Old Testament reading, and we're going to get right into it today, is, is the story of David and Bathsheba, the great sin, the great stain on David's life. But ultimately, God redeems the great stain on David's life because Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon. So when we look at this passage, remember redemption, mercy, grace, love, covenant. All those words. All those words are in play here in this passage. So the first mistake is this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, the king, sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. David didn't go. Kings go out to battle in the spring. David doesn't go. David's getting fat and happy. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Remember what they used to say about David. When they first came, the people of Israel, the other 11 tribes, when they came to make David king, what they said is, in the past, Saul was king, but you were the one in charge. You're the one who let us out and let us in. You're the one we followed, and here David doesn't go. He's fat, and he's happy, and he's satisfied. It's good to be king. So he stays in Jerusalem. And then it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, checking out all his domain would be the implication here. He, he's seeing from the roof of his house. He's seeing the city of David. He's seeing all that he surveys, which belongs to him as king. And he sees from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So David sees a naked woman and says, I got to have her. He sent and inquired about the woman. He didn't just let it go. Just let it go, David. Go back in. Walk away. Nope. He sends and inquires about the woman. And one one said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he sends and he finds out, and she's married to somebody who's not an Israelite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. David... Alarm bells should have gone off the first time. There's a beautiful woman over there. I've seen her naked. I should just let this go and move on. Nope. He sends and finds out who she is. Well, she's a married woman, David. Should have ended there. Nope. David sent messengers and took her, and she came, and he lay with her. 
doesn't speak highly of either one of them, but it's David we're going to blame in this situation. He has all the power, right? I mean, this is a classic example of what we're seeing in, in society now in the, in the Me Too movement, which is that, that men in power, um, that power gives them uh, a, a heightened responsibility in these situations. They're, they're using this power in order to get something from somebody else, and, and, and it's a disadvantageous relationship and so we're not going to be as critical of Bathsheba as we are of David in this relationship in the same way that we blame Adam rather than Eve primarily because he knew the word well David knew better and instead what he does and the woman conceives and sends to David and says I'm pregnant David going to leave it there nope he sent word to Joab send me Uriah the Hittite he is one of the soldiers of Joab. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and Uriah came to him. And David asks, hey, how's Joab doing? How are the people doing? How's the war going? Well, David, you should be there. <clears throat> Uriah responds. He went out of the king's house. There followed... <clears throat> no, sorry, I jumped forward a little bit too far there. <laughs> so then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Go on home for a little while, Uriah. You, you need a break. You need a rest. Go home. Take care of yourself. Clean up a little bit. And Uriah came to him. He goes out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and didn't go down to his house. So he comes in from the battle. David brings him in, tells him to go home for a little while. The implication is, enjoy yourself with your wife. <clears throat> he doesn't do it. So then... They tell David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David says, haven't you come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah says, the ark and the Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is an honorable man. He cares more about God's people, the ark, and the soldiers, including Joab than David does, because David has not deigned to even go down to the battle. And David instead has been enjoying himself with Uriah's wife. And so Uriah is a more righteous man than David. Uriah refuses to dwell in security and to enjoy the comforts of life while the Lord's servants are in battle. Nope, not going to do it. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. And so, so he remained that day and the next. And David invited him. He ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. David trying to get him drunk so he'll go sleep with his wife. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants, but he did not go down to his house. And now David's angry. So he sends a letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah. And again, we're going to find out, well, Uriah is a man of extraordinary character. What could he have done, right? I mean, David's sending a letter to Joab. Uriah could have looked at it, but he obviously doesn't. Because in the letter he writes, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Leave this man alone. Set him right there in the front and then pull everybody back and leave him by himself so that he can die. And so he did. Joab does what he was told to do. He puts Uriah out front. And they came out and fought with Joab out of the city, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sends a messenger back, and what he, he wants to explain 
we, we've lost a bunch of men here. And, and if the king asks you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you'll say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so David didn't just kill Uriah. David's instructions put other men, men of Israel at risk as well, innocent men like Uriah the Hittite. And they died as well. So it's not just Uriah, David's responsible for his death. Mm -mm, No, it's all those soldiers who had to go into harm's way because of David's instructions concerning Uriah the Hittite. David should have stopped this train way before it ever started. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have made further inquiries, and he certainly shouldn't have sent messengers. And then he tries to cover it up by getting Uriah drunk and goes home sleep with his wife. So, well, there's a proximity in time, and therefore he could reasonably say, well, it could be Uriah's child. But Uriah denies him that because he's an honorable man. And so then they come back, and then David ensures that Uriah dies. So there's nobody to to make the claim that it's David's child necessarily. And then because of that sin, many men died that day and when the morning so she found out that her husband was dead she went into mourning and after the morning was over David took her and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord David thought he'd gotten away with this at some level his conscience probably didn't allow him to believe that he'd gotten away with it but it looked for all the world that David was going to get away with this so it, it it's a difficult thing our sins have such a ripple effect that we can't even imagine what they are, right? So then remember that Jesus has warned the crowds and told them, you know, whoever um, wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is going to save it. And so now six days later, he, he's been talking about the, the whole suffering death thing. And, and six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up onto a high mountain by themselves, and he's transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's not possible. It's an unearthly white, is what we're told. There appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And it's curious to me, you know, and everybody else, too, is how do they know that? Um, And and I assume they know it in retrospect. Uh, Peter says, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's preserve this moment. Let's stay right here. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. I'll bet they were. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. There was no question who this voice was now speaking of. Not not the two great men of Israel. Not Moses the deliverer. Not Elijah the great prophet, who in a time of apostasy saved Israel. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I mean, I'm sure they're looking at each other and goes, I don't even know what we'll tell people. Nobody would believe what we just saw and what we just heard. But to hear the word, the word come from heaven, proclaiming Jesus as the beloved Son and saying, listen to him, is to say, ignore everything you think you know from the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Ignore all that you think you know, and listen to him. And it's not because Jesus is preaching a different word. It's because they're, they've, they've come to the wrong conclusion about things from studying the law and the prophets. They've missed the truth. 
because they're looking for this messianic king. And so what God's saying is, is that, that forget everything you think you know about this. I'm going to show you the truth. And the truth is there in the law and the prophets, but it's just been misapplied and misinterpreted. Listen to him for the interpretation of all things. So he tells them not to tell anybody, and they do, shockingly. It's like the first time in all the Gospels that Jesus tells somebody not to do something, and they actually obey him. So they, but they're questioning, what, what is this rising from the dead? What does that mean? They're not thinking about resurrection at all. And so then he asks, or they ask, why did the scribes say that Elijah first has to come? He says, Elijah has to come first to restore all things in accordance with a Malachi prophecy. How is it written in the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt, which they're not seeing? And he says, I tell you, Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased. And it was, as it was written of him, it's John the Baptist was who he's talking about. He, he comes to restore things and prepare people. And he can't even prepare the king, Herod who is himself a Jew. So then we, get, we move into this Acts passage. Remember, Paul's in Ephesus. He's preaching there in the hall of Tyrannus, not in the synagogue because they'd run him out of the synagogue. But, but he was doing extraordinary miracles, God was, through the, the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons he had touched <clears throat> with his, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the part that's missing from that statement. Then some of the, and this is hilarious, this funniest story in the Bible. Then some of the itinerant exorcists, Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom was the Holy Spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, they're, they're trying to play with the name of Jesus. They're trying to say, oh, there's power in that name. We don't know what the power is. We have no earthly idea. But it seems to work when Paul does this. So let's do the same thing. As though it were some sort of perfect spell that they were placing on these demons. But it, but they didn't know Jesus. And they weren't standing there covered in the blood of Jesus. Because they didn't recognize these men. They recognized Jesus. They recognized Paul. And they would be obedient to them, but these men had no power. Because they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're essentially doing it in their name. In their own names. They're nobodies. But in Jesus... Paul somebody if Paul had tried to do this apart from Jesus it would have worked but but because he stands positionally in Jesus even the demons recognize and would have obeyed but these sons of Sceva didn't know Jesus didn't believe in Jesus they were not in him they were not covered by his blood they were not sealed in baptism and so this thing says I'm just going to have my way with you you have no power that name has no power unless you stand positionally in him. And so this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The power in Jesus, the power in the name for us, is only there if we're in him. It's the reason that too many people use this as an epithet. You know, They'll use the name of Jesus as a curse 
when they say it. And it's a horrible thing. And I hate, hate, hate to hear somebody say that. If you really want me to dislike you, that's the quickest way to do it because I don't understand it. I don't understand why it's an epithet and a curse. I have no earthly idea. It, it's only a demonic thing to cheapen the name. These sons of Sceva would have known better. They would absolutely have known better. They would have known the power in that name. It's the only name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. And people use it as a curse and an epithet. Never heard a single person say Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius in those ways. Why would that be? Why would that be? Why would that be an epithet? It makes no sense, but it is. And it's because they want to cheapen it. But these sons of Sceva found out that you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And that's the, the perfect example of, of what it means to take the Lord in vain is what they did here. They took it for the purpose of vanity. They took it for to, to enhance their own name. They attempted to use the name of Jesus. Rather than Paul, who never cared what people thought of him. He only cared what people thought of Jesus. And that's the important thing we need to understand. It's a mighty and a powerful and a wonderful name. And, and it's the most important name we can have. It is our protection against all harm and against the enemy. And so now believers came. In addition to that, in addition to these people being fearful because of what had happened, and they saw the power that, that needs to, that, that's appropriately used. So then there are others who are now believers come, and they divulge their practices. Hey, we've been practicing witchcraft. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, holy cow. What in the world? How much magic and witchcraft was being practiced in this place? That they had books that would be 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, Ephesus was a place, certainly, where, where there was a lot of witchcraft. There was, there was, uh, the, the Sibyls were there. There's all kinds of crazy stuff happening in Ephesus. It's a, it's a home for the gods. And so, but it was a very wealthy place as well. So, but the word of the Lord then becomes uh, mighty and to increase greatly. It, it's, it's important that we call people out of things like witchcraft like that, anything that would invoke a name in order to do that. We could see that in our day because a great many people practice what we would refer to literally as witchcraft because they're invoking other things and depending on other things that they believe to be gods to deliver them or to give them what they want. And we need to be aware that we're calling people out of paganism out of other belief systems to come and understand the power that's only found in the name of Jesus.